Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Bite, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Bite.com. Bite clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, from Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. I was there to speak at the World Travel and Tourism Annual Global Summit with 55 separate tourism ministers and five heads of state. An opportunity to sit down and talk with the leaders in global travel, including Tony Capuano, the CEO of Marriott, Hussein Munye, the president of Zanzibar, Chester Cooper, the Minister of Tourism for the Bahamas, and Defad Hamadadin, the head of the Saudi Tourism Authority, on the explosive growth in tourism in a kingdom that had been closed to the outside world for 79 years. First up, Tony Capuano. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Tony, how many hotels are we talking about now? About 8,100. But who's counting? Who's counting? Unbelievable. And that's worldwide, of course. Worldwide. And am I, am I correct in saying 30 brands? 31. See, I, thank you. What, which one did I miss? We just acquired City Express. See, I knew I missed a, one. Okay. Uh, uh, mid-scale chain based in Mexico. 
Let's talk big picture here because a year ago we were talking recovery. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking growth. But more importantly than that, we're really talking about managing that growth. Uh, we're looking across the board and we talked about this on our show, God, for the last four months. Hotel rates 23 to 28% higher than 2019, mm-hmm. right? Americans traveling with no real price sense sensitivity. Uh, People would like to call it revenge travel. I particularly was surprised, maybe you weren't, that I thought travel would drop off after Labor Day, as it usually does, Mm -hmm. but it didn't do that. It hasn't. I think a few reasons. Number one, this idea of blended trip purpose, which we saw start to emerge. It's a change in lifestyle. It is. Um, By necessity, all of us have learned, while it may not be optimal, we can work from almost anywhere. No, no, we will work from almost anywhere. I suppose that's right. Uh, and as a result, people, we see it in the day-by-day booking patterns. Uh, Thursday and Sunday, which used to be the shoulder days, are among the days of the week that have recovered most quickly. And it's because people are tacking leisure onto the front or back end. So they're extending the trips. That's exactly right. And without regard for price. Well, the, the pricing piece is interesting. If you look at the last two big shocks to travel and tourism post 9-11 and the Great Recession, it took the industry about five years to see pricing power recover. In this crisis, pricing power has recovered and exceeded 19 in just two years. Part of that's because of savings rate. Part of it is what you described, this deep pent-up demand for travel. But the thing we're seeing most recently is the booking window is exceedingly short. They're mostly close in. That's exactly right. And I think what's happening, and we hear this from our customers, they have some concerns about all the economic headwinds that are out there. So they're delaying the decision to travel, whether for business or leisure, They understand they're going to pay more for that flexibility, but but because of all those swirling economic headwinds, that's a fair trade in their mind. So they're adapting to the disruption. That's right. But the other thing I'm noticing is, you you mentioned savings, right? Mm -hmm. During the pandemic, people built up some savings. They had had money to burn. Mm -hmm. They were burning it. But now we're looking at credit card debt at over $931 billion that we owe on our credit cards. Well, and, and, and I think, let's go back to your comment about savings. Yeah. I think a lot of us in travel and tourism were comforted by the fact that in the U.S., I think the number I heard was $2 trillion sitting in U.S. savings accounts. I read something the other day that said that's down to $700 you billion. See, you see, I made a, a big mistake in, 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 during the pandemic. I figured people were just going to go right to their credit cards, and the number of credit card defaults would, mm-hmm. would go through the roof. That did not happen. No, they were tapping those savings, but you see it now. Now, $700 billion is still an enormous amount of money, um, but to see a billion or $130 billion drained out of those savings is, is not insignificant. And on top of that, you're right. The combination of reliance on consumer debt combined with a rapidly ra- uh, increasing interest rate environment is just another set of the headwinds and uncertainty that I, I talked mean, about. I mean, sooner or later, you know, the knock comes, you got to pay the bill. That's exactly right. One other development that I'm seeing, and, and this is pre-pandemic, but it's really coming back now, is, and this may not be Marriott, but if you go online to make a reservation at a hotel or at an airline, when it comes to hit the word pay, another thing pops up that allows you to do the layaway plan, Mm -hmm. right? Are you guys participating in that? Well, less so that, but one of the things we launched early in the recovery is we have a travel insurance program with Allianz now, and it's in the booking window. And I think that the timing of that, while this was not necessarily deliberate, it really dovetails well with the current mindset of the consumer where they say, I still have this uncertainty 
and that that travel insurance gives them another layer right of but comfort. that's the travel insurance i'm talking about the actual payment of the trip meaning uh, there's a company called uplift or uh, citibank has just started a service where okay you have it may not be for a 59 dollar ticket on southwest mm-hmm. but if you're doing a three thousand dollar cruise or whatever you can pay thirty dollars a month right. for the rest of yeah, your life we're not in the, in that yeah. business today yeah. but yeah. you're right there are many intermediaries on the payment side that are looking for ways to to respond to some of that consumer uncertainty so when you're looking at traveler behavior, we've already established it's a close-in booking window. Mm-hmm. They're making decisions much sooner in. They're making decisions faster, right? They're not delaying. Right. They're not really price sensitive. But in a certain way, they're also making a choice. Maybe they're not going to buy a new car. Maybe they're not going to buy new clothing or, that, or go back to a restaurant every single night anymore, but they're not going to give up the travel. Well, you and I started to scratch at this a little bit the last time we were together. And uh, I was just with the chief economist from Visa, and he was sharing a lot of data with us. This move away from hard goods towards experiences that had started pre-pandemic. But then it it really inverted during the pandemic, but now it's inverted again. And I think that's something we're going to see. Pre-pandemic, people talked about the younger generations having that predisposition. To me, the pandemic acted as a bit of an accelerant across multiple generations. And the strength of that appetite for experiences versus hard goods, I think, is the other thing that's accelerated the pace of recovery. And do you think that's going to be here to stay? I do. I do. Although it it puts... um, depending on your perspective, a burden or creates an opportunity for those in the, in the travel business, those customers, they want authentic experiences, they want new experiences, they want adventure travel, and they want to understand how they can be an active participant in sustainable travel. And they'll pay for it. No question. Which is different than it used to be. That's right. You know, I'm looking at some of the other trends as we get to the holiday season and the end of the year and going into next year. The fact that FedEx would be parking planes right now at the end of the year and going into next year, that never happens at the end of the year. No, but I think that's perhaps time will tell. When I first read that data, to me, it was another data point about this pivot from hard goods to experiences. And we see it in some of the holiday season travel. I think you have families that are saying, instead of torturing ourselves going to the mall or participating in Cyber Monday or Black Friday... Let's take a family trip because perhaps we postponed it during the pandemic. So we expect a very strong, very robust holiday travel season. We're talking with Tony Capuano, the CEO of Marriott. So what you're really saying to me, Tony, is you're really happy you're not a retailer. (laughs) Well, I'm happy I'm in travel. Travel is a uh, great industry. And uh, I I think all of us, me included, I, I probably took my love of travel a bit for granted until it was taken away in the early days of the pandemic. Well, you're not alone. That's, that's really what gets into perhaps educating governments about the economic power of travel and tourism, because I think a lot of governments took it for granted. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you know, that's a, a recurring theme here at WTTC, the fact that, that uh, pre-pandemic travel and tourism was more than 10% of global GDP, that one in every 10 jobs around the world was in the travel and tourism sector. And, and I think governments are now recognizing not just the, the economic power of travel, but the opportunities that travel creates for their citizens. Of course, there was one other figure that was pre-pandemic, which we're going to talk about, because not only was it one in every 10 jobs, at one point before the pandemic, it was one every five new jobs. Mm-hmm. 
well, we know about staff shortages, right? You had to pivot. Everybody had to pivot. You're still pivoting, right? Where did everybody go? I think some folks left the workforce entirely. Uh, many have termed the, the pandemic as uh, a female uh, recession, if you will, in terms of the, the disproportionate share of female uh, participants in the workforce that left during the pandemic. Some went to other industries, uh, and some are having to pivot to alternative work arrangements. I think that's going to be one of the big um, innovations that come out of the, the post-pandemic era. Typically in hotels, we had very um, consistent shifts and scheduling. Uh, we at Marriott have now pivoted to things like part-time managers, uh, job sharing. I was just in, in North Boston and I was talking to one of our general managers who had a finance director that said, I really can only work two or three days a week. We found another finance director with a similar challenge, and the two of them are sharing that job. That's not something that we had done historically. If I go to a restaurant in Italy, right, I, I know I'm stereotyping, but bear with me. The person who's, who's my waiter or waitress, they don't look at that as their job. They look at that as their profession. That's right? exactly right. And maybe their father or mother did that. They really love their job. I go to New York to a restaurant, and the person who is the waiter or waitress is an out-of-work actress or actor waiting for a call. So was it also a wake-up call to the travel industry that you had to redefine the definition of the word job versus profession? I think this had started pre-pandemic. It's more urgent now that we need to remind folks this is a terrific industry to build careers. Uh, we talk with great pride about the fact that more than half our general managers globally started in hourly positions. But you raise a great point. I'm lucky enough to spend a lot of time in Italy. And, and the, the manner in which so many Italians embrace service jobs as the potential for long-term career, there is deep pride and dignity in service jobs. You should, and do, I a, think you should do a cultural exchange. You should bring those, those waiters and waitresses and service personnel to do six-month stints at your hotels. I'm not sure we could ever drag them out of Italy, but we should try. It's called incentives. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, I do think as an industry, and really as a sector, yeah. we need to do a better job helping people understand these are not temporary jobs. They can be, certainly, but they're not just stepping stone jobs, really wonderful, enriching careers can be created in the travel and tourism sector. One of the things that happened, I'll give you a plus that came out of the pandemic. When I check into a hotel room now, I'm not buried in paper. I love it. I'm no more tent cards, no more. It's just like, I, the first thing I used to do when I checked into any hotel, not just yours, mm -hmm. is open the desk drawer and shove everything in. It was the biggest it waste of everything. It looks much seen. cleaner now. Yeah. It looks more like your home. Right. Well, now, now that you mentioned that, let's talk about housekeeping. <laughs> okay. A lot of hotels were confronted with a labor problem with housekeeping. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just COVID protocols. It was personnel. Coming out of it now, as the, as the industry emerges from that, is housekeeping going to be a la carte? So it, it, from, I can't speak to the, our competitors, but at Marriott, we look at it by quality tier. So we're here at the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh in our luxury hotels. It'll essentially be exactly what it was pre-pandemic, full housekeeping every day. In our upper upscale hotels, Marriott, Weston, Sheraton, it'll be a daily tidy. 
So they'll make the bed, they'll change the linens, or excuse me, change the, the terry in the bathroom, vacuum, empty the trash. In our select service hotels, courtyard, uh, AC, a loft, it'll be in every other day tidy. However, there will always be customer preference. So we still have some guests that are uncomfortable with a housekeeper coming into their room. They can opt out of housekeeping during their stay. And conversely, can I have and them come conversely, somebody may want somebody to come in every day and we'll accommodate that as well. I'll give you an example. Not your hotel. You'll be very happy to know. But I checked into a hotel in Chicago, big convention hotel. Mm-hmm. And the irony is... This is a hotel that was hosting their first meeting in a long time, and, it was, and I was there to give a speech to the American Society of Travel Advisors. So the entire hotel was filled mm-hmm. with travel advisors. I'm only there for one night. I get there at 6 o'clock at night. I said, great, can you press my suit? Uh, we don't do that anymore. Uh, do you have a restaurant? We don't have that anymore. Uh, what about housekeeping? Once every four days. So I said, well, wait a minute. Let me guess. The average convention stay is three. So... Stop playing games here. You're either a full-service hotel or you're not. And what is your rate? Is it the same as it was before the pandemic? It was. Probably higher. Well, it became higher, yeah. Yeah, there are varying opinions on this. I've heard some say it should be all about customer choice. Um, But at some point, we've got to remind ourselves, we're in the hospitality business. Um, When you go buy a car, uh, when you go to the finance director's office, they don't say, do you want seats? Do you want tires? If you're buying a car, you assume there are certain. Well, you haven't been to my auto dealer, yeah. But go ahead. <laughs> but similarly, I mean, there are certain base levels of service that I think define different quality tiers, and and that really has has driven our approach, coupled with what we hear from our customers. And and sometimes I think our industry overcomplicates things. You, you learn the most by listening to your customers. One of the things that we're talking about here in Riyadh of course, is a word that's often misleading, not by intention, but it is, sustainability. I, have to, I, I still try to get people to define it for me. Mm-hmm. But in the, in the hotel business, with more than 8,000 hotels around the world, you have to be able to communicate to your owners what that word means. We do, although it's interesting. I always think about uh, our business model as requiring us to stay laser-focused on three distinct constituents our associates, which is what we call our employees, our guests, obviously, and then our owners. Each of those constituents, for their own set of reasons, is keenly focused on the health of the planet. Uh, It's really interesting. You brought up labor earlier. As we all fight to attract labor, especially this new generation workforce, they have a lot of options, and they're looking for companies whose personal values align with theirs. And and, um, not just flowery language, but but aggressive goal setting and demonstrable progress against those goals is critical to that element of the workforce. Anybody could stand up here at this summit, and many have, and just mission statement parade, a mission statement festival. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily strong and relevant, right? Nothing we haven't heard before. So your challenge, right, with all these hotels, is how do you communicate what's acceptable behavior in terms of the environment, in terms of global, global warming, climate change, and guest preference. So uh, one of the great advantages of having this 31 brand system is we have very clearly articulated brand standards and operating procedures across the entirety of the portfolio. 
there are simple things that, that perhaps got slowed down during the pandemic, but a pivot away from single-use bath amenities towards bulk amenities. But you were starting to do that before the pandemic. That's right. And then supply chain and some other challenges hit. Uh, I am confident we'll be at 99% compliance by the end of the year. Okay, I have a question. Terrific. Sure. You, early on, you guys replaced the, the, you know, the single-use little baby bottles, which mm-hmm. I used to love, by the way. Of course. I, in fact, when I built my house, I built the bathroom with the shelves only to hold those. <laughs> That's how demented I am. Okay, so I missed those, but you put the bigger dispensers on the wall. Tell me the truth. How many guests have stolen them? Off the wall, not many. <laughs> What's interesting is in our luxury portfolio, yeah. uh, we want them to have a little more residential and feel, they, so and they, they sit on the counter. The big bottles? Yeah, and, and I was just at one of our new luxury hotels. You talked about the elimination of tent cards. Yeah. I did see a small one there that said, please enjoy these amenities, and you're welcome to buy them for home use at right. $98 a bottle. Well, I saw a story that we reported on it, and I couldn't believe it, Right. I mean, it's one thing to, to, to take the bottle, right? Mm-hmm. It's maybe one thing that people walk with bathrobes, but about nine, 49 hotels reported that people stole the mattresses. Is that right? So here's my concept here, Tony. Tell me if I'm wrong. I, I can understand how you could possibly get it off the bed and out the door of the room. I could maybe give you some leeway on the fact that you could get it down the hall, maybe even into the elevator. How do you get it out of the building? Could be a staffing issue. I'm not sure. <laughs> Although I will tell you, you know, we, we like many big brand companies, have uh, online retail right. to buy candles and bath amenities. The single highest selling product is our mattresses. Yeah, but I'm talking about the ones that walk. Yeah, I, well, I'm not sure I would steal a used mattress. 49 of them said goodbye. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, mean I, I can't physically get my arms around the idea of how did they get it out of the building? That's a good question. Well... The other one is, when you look at all the things that people have stolen over the years, you could ask the same question. We're talking grand pianos. Televisions, yeah. banquet tables. Yeah, right. Never so, discount traveler's ingenuity. Right, so you probably have a service for 12 at home? 14. <laughs> Are you admitting to taking silverware? Absolutely not. <laughs> I may have purchased some things okay, from Marriott fine, you're Boutiques. But it's interesting to see that as... The actual amenities change in the hotel rooms, what gets taken. Because mm-hmm. in the old days, I remember the, the, the general manager would tell me, well, we, we don't want to put big bath sheets in the rooms because people will steal them. I said, no, they won't. They can't fit them in their bags. And you know what? I was right, right? Yeah, although I, I think, you know, the, it, it's good fun to tell these stories. It's a tiny, tiny fraction of our guests. Okay. The vast majority are very respectful and, and uh, you know, they feel like part of the Marriott family. And so they take right, wonderful so care. Feeling like part of the Marriott family, what's your biggest source of traveler complaint? What do you hear the most about? Um. I think what I hear, I I don't hear it that frequently, but when we fall short on cleanliness, I hear it uh, very loudly. Um, We we have a nearly century-old reputation for sparkling clean hotels. The expectations were elevated during the pandemic when we rolled out new protocols. And I think if we ever fall short in that instance, our guests rightly raise their voices about it. By the way, the big heroes at your hotel is the housekeeping. No question. I mean... I actually tested myself one day with a housekeeper to see if I could clean 12 rooms in a shift. 
I couldn't even come close. It is really hard work. I couldn't and they come take close. such deep pride. The next time we're together, I'm going to take you to a housekeeping lineup at 7 a.m. I'll, I'll go with you. You will be so motivated and energized. It's, uh, okay, it's my here's favorite my, part of a hotel all right, visit. Then did you learn how to make a bed differently? Uh, I learned how to make it more quickly and more precisely. That's what I'm saying. I mean, they know how to do it. They sure do. My thanks to Tony. One of the biggest areas of travel and tourism growth is now in Africa. And the question is not just the growth, which may be inevitable, but in how you manage that growth. Someone who knows that challenge is Hussein Munye, the president of Zanzibar. Nice to see you again, sir. Thank you very much. Nice to see you, too. Uh, you know, when we came back from that show, which is the royal tour with Her Excellency Mama Samia, the president of Tanzania, of which Zanzibar is a part, of course, uh, everybody who saw that show looked at me and said, okay, what kind of filter did you use on your camera? Because the water was so different colored and blue. I said, no, no, that's the way it looks there. Yes. People, I mean, when people first come to Zanzibar, they're blown away by two things, right? Mm-hmm. The history and the Arab culture and the Arab architecture, yes. right? Mm-hmm. The cobblestone stone streets, which I call this this maze, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the water. Yes. Yes. Well, um, we are blessed in Zanzibar to have a very, very beautiful um, coast. We have very white sands and uh, we have um, absolutely beautiful beaches all around the, the islands. And uh, as you said, the other part of uh, the, the, the tourism in Zanzibar is the heritage. We do have this stone town uh, full of uh, history, full of architecture. And I think those are the two areas that uh, make uh, Zanzibar one of the best places to, to tour. Of course, one of your challenges, and you're not alone in that challenge, mm. is what was on the table before the pandemic, right? The topic yes. A was mm. over-tourism yes. on a global scale mm-hmm. and sustainability. Mm-hmm. Well, it's back on the table, isn't it? Yes, it is definitely on the table, and uh, we are happy to, to say that we are taking measures to mitigate that because um, COVID, the pandemic, um, brought us um, uh, very hard economic hardships because... Uh, as uh, Zanzibar, we rely uh, on tourism. 30% of our GDP is on tourism. 80% of our uh, foreign exchange earning is from tourism. And just to put that in perspective, Mr. Yeah. President, mm-hmm. on a global scale, yes. it's only 11%. Yes. So you're way above that. We are way above that. Almost one third of our economy depends on tourism. Now we are looking at ways of diversifying our economy, at the same time mitigating the climate uh, um, changes in Zanzibar. So we are now putting in place policies uh, that would make sure that we go for high-end, low-volume tourism so as to you know, maintain and, and, and to, to mitigate and, the climate and isn't change. The, what you're saying, though, is, is, is remarkable because mm. it represents a change that are seeing mm. almost on a global scale. Yes. Because if I were to interview... Mm-hmm or spend time talking to a minister of tourism 10 years ago mm-hmm. on any country in the world, yes. they'd say, mm-hmm. well, here are the numbers, mm-hmm. right? Yes. We had so many visitors. Yes. They spent so many days. Yes. They spent so much money. Yes. Mm-hmm. That playbook's out. That's out, definitely. Now we are looking at, uh, as I said, high-end, low volume. We will, in the end, achieve the same economic impact, but at the same time mitigate climate change. <clears throat> are you seeing some of that climate change? 
We do, definitely do. We have erosions, we have uh, coastal erosion, that is, and we also do have droughts, and uh, we have a lot of uh, issues. Now we are looking to mitigate all that. So, for example, if I'm a hotel developer, yes. and I showed up in Stonetown, mm-hmm. or on Pemba Island, mm-hmm. or the other islands that you have, mm-hmm. the first thought I'd have is, mm-hmm. this is so beautiful, mm-hmm. I can't wait to build something here. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean I can't build something there, mm. but you're now putting in other policies to let me know what I can build. Exactly. First of all, it, it will have to be ecotourism in terms of the material that are going to be used, the number of rooms in that hotel, and, uh, you know, all those uh, um, uh, things that will make us get high-end uh, tourism and not mass tourism as we used to do in the past. And other considerations that most travelers don't even think about, like wastewater yes. or, or employee housing. Yes. Things that have to go into that mix, otherwise you're in big trouble. Absolutely. We have to look into all that, including re, uh, recycling of uh, the waste. We are also looking at the type of energy to be used. We need it to be renewable now. So all those measures are in place now to make sure that we have sustainable tourism. And of course, as the, one of the things that happened during COVID, and, and Zanzibar and Tanzania actually was a beneficiary of that, believe it or not, mm-hmm. as the world sought out places for social distancing, mm-hmm. as they sought out places where they could literally breathe, mm-hmm. you became a very viable alternative. Absolutely. We are, as, you, as I said earlier, um, there's, it was a blessing uh, in disguise because we realized uh, that we were the, the tourism we were undertaking before the pandemic uh, was um, like mass tourism and it was not good for, for the environment. So now we have uh, re-looked uh, into our policies and we are doing it differently now to make sure that it is sustainable. So let me be devil's advocate for something. If you're going to go for a high-end, high-quality tourism, yes. that means it's going to cost me more. Yes, it's going to cost more, but uh, that's the, the way we want it, and that's the way it will be sustainable. So people will have to look uh, for more resources to come and get uh, their vacations uh, in, in Zanzibar at the same time to make sure that it is, it is sustainable for, for, for the future. Of course, the, the, uh, the natural extension of that yeah. is that if I'm paying more for something, mm-hmm. I'm going to value it more. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are looking forward to make sure that people get quality that they deserve. Yeah. Now, part and parcel of all that is how you get there. Yes. Right? Airlift. Yes. If you look at the world without airlift, mm-hmm. economies shrink, mm-hmm. governments become destabilized, mm-hmm. economics mm-hmm. 101. Yes. Mm-hmm. What are you doing about airlift? Well, um, we are looking to, to speak to uh, the different uh, carriers. Um, the connectivity is very important for any tourist destination. Um, the majority of tourists coming to Zanzibar now are Europeans, almost 70% of them. We are looking to go into new markets like the uh, Middle East and Asia, and we are now uh, also looking at uh, United States. So we will be speaking to, uh, to the uh, people with the airlines to make sure that we are connected with the, with the other parts of the world. And of course, you have that double-edged sword there as well, because the airlines will say, okay, we'll fly there if we can get enough people to come. That's right. Mm-hmm. Right? They're not going to fly there with six people. That's right. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Well, um, we are going to promote our tourism, and we have started that. Uh, and uh, it looks like we are going to succeed in that, because um, the, 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 uh, the plans we put in action 
to promote tourism of Zanzibar and Tanzania in general are working very well. So we are looking forward to get a good number of uh, passengers in these uh, airlines. Of course, you also have to have the beds to fill them. That's right. Mm. So, you know, that's the only thing. What, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> that's right. Well, we, we definitely, the question of beds is important. Uh, but as I said earlier, it's always about, you know, uh, balancing uh, between having hotels that are high-end, low volume, you know, uh, against hotels with so many rooms that will definitely not be sustainable to our tourism. So again, we are, we are now talking to uh, companies that uh, have high-end um, tourism, high-end hotels, so as to increase the numbers, but at the same time make sure that we are not you know, doing it in a mass way. So, devil's advocate question number two. Once you do that, aren't you then closing off Tanzania and Zanzibar to a lot of people who'd like to come? Yes, it might be the, the consequences, but again, we want people to come. We want it to be sustainable. We want people to come for another hundred years, not just in the next five years and get all uh, disasters uh, climate-wise. So for us, it's important that we limit uh, the numbers. We, we make sure that we get high-end tourism. And I think it will work for us economically, but at the same time, it will be sustainable. So now, having said all that, Mr. President, yes. what's your biggest challenge? The biggest challenge right now is, um, you know, post-COVID, uh, we, 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 are, we are coming back now slowly. And uh, again, uh, the question is connectivity. Uh, the question is also uh, the fact that uh, the new policies that we are putting in place will not be able to be uh, implemented immediately, so it will take some time. But eventually, we are sure that uh, it will work much better than, than in the past. And you have to move faster. We do, we do have to move faster, yeah, that's right, yes. Mm. Otherwise, mm. it all gets lost. Absolutely. But, uh, uh, but with the promotion in place, um, I'm sure we'll, we'll achieve what we, we, are set, uh, we are setting to do. So basically what you're saying to me is, is come to Zanzibar now before the prices go up. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, even when the prices are up, what, what we are sure about is that we'll give people the quality for the money they are paying. My thanks to the president of Zanzibar. And when it comes to managing tourism, the Bahamas may be a good case study. And Chester Cooper, the Minister of Tourism, can't just depend on the number of visitors anymore. His challenge is in delivering the quality of the experience. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
Prime Minister Cooper, thank you. Thank you. I've been going to the Bahamas for, I hate to say it, over 40 years. I've seen so much change. I've seen so much that hasn't changed. But if you take a look at the roller coaster impact of global warming and climate change and weather, you've had some tough times down there. And, 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 you know, we, we talk about things in this conference, we talk about, everyone wants to talk about growth, we also have to talk about recovery. Mm-hmm. So bring me up to date on, from the last big storm, I remember how tough that was, on where you are today. So thank you for having me. The last 40 years has been interesting. Yes, it has. We have gone through Dorian, but I'm pleased to tell you it's still better in the Bahamas. <laughs> and, uh, are you giving me a branding <laughs> message? <laughs> So Dorian was in 2019. It impacted two of our main islands, Abaco and Grand Bahama, fairly severely. But we have recovered significantly. Two messages I wanted to get to the world is that we are 16 island destinations. Most people don't know that. Yes, most people think when they watch one of our islands being devastated that the entire Bahamas is is underwater. But nothing can be further from this route. That's the first point. And the second point is that we are open for business. We're back. We're operational. Uh, We've had significant uh, levels of recovery in our infrastructure. There's still some work to do uh, but yes, we are back. You, know, you mentioned 16 islands. Most people listening to the show do not know that. Mm-hmm. Most people who say they've been to the Bahamas have been to Nassau. Yes, that's right. Right? They don't get outside. Mm-hmm. I mean, it drives me nuts that you should, okay, you land in Nassau. Mm-hmm. Now you should get out. Yes. And, and see those islands. You can do this by uh, a short flight from Nassau. Or if you fly directly into to Grand Bahama, there's a short flight or ferry. You can go to Abaco. You can fly directly from Charlotte into Exuma. In fact, we have all of the major airlines coming into the Bahamas. We have Bahamas Air doing the interconnectivity uh, for the islands of the Bahamas. So it's fairly easy to get around, whether you do it by ferry or whether you do it by Bahamas Air or another small commuter airline. Uh, we ensure that the travel is seamless, and we want you to see more than one destination. You can go to Nassau for cosmopolitan living, for casinos and, and restaurants, etc., uh, nightlife. You can go to Exuma for boating and yachting. You can go to Rum Key or Crooked Island for fishing or doing nothing at all. So there is something for everybody, and this is how we are promoting the 16 island destinations. Let me tell you, though, even though we promote 16 <laughs> island destinations, we've still got 700 islands in the Bahamas. So we have things to do. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to give you my secret. I use the Bahamas as a bookend. Mm-hmm. So I will go to the Bahamas, and then I'll go somewhere else, and then I'll come back to the Bahamas. For about 25 years, that's how I went to Cuba, hmm, right? I'd fly to Nassau. Mm-hmm. I'd overnight at the old Colonial Hilton, mm-hmm. right? Right across from Dunkin' Donuts. Yes. You know where that is, uh-huh. right? And then I'd take Cubana and fly to either you know Veradero right. or Havana, mm-hmm. spend a couple of days there, and then come back and spend three or four days in the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. It was, it, and by the way, the distances are not that great. It's still a great possibility. We have amazing airlift uh, from London. We have daily flights now on British Airways and, and Virgin. We have flights from all of the major cities in the U.S. And one of the things we've been working with the Caribbean Tourism Organization on is multi-destination travel throughout the Caribbean. So, yes, you can come to the Bahamas the same way you can do inter-island travel during for our 16 island destinations. We're now collaborating with Caribbean Tourism Organization. So, yes, you can fly to Bahamas and then go to Cuba or Jamaica and then come back to the Bahamas. We have pre-clearance in the Bahamas. So that, that makes let me talk about pre-clearance, easy. my favorite thing on the, mm-hmm. on the map. 
It's been around since 1952. People mm. don't realize that. It started in Canada. Mm. It's in the Bahamas. It's in the Bermuda. It's actually in Abu Dhabi, mm. right? It's in Ireland. Mm. It, to me, other than global entry, it's the best thing to happen since I spread because you clear U.S. Customs and Border Protection and immigration in Nassau yes. before you go home. This is huge. We also have TSA PreCheck as the first international destination to have this. Uh, so You realize, of course, that the best overseas assignment for a U.S. Customs officer is to be based in the Bahamas. That sounds like They got a good deal going. I think that's right, Yeah, if I might say so myself. Exactly. But basically what we can do is we're, we're, we're looking to see how we can also uh, enhance our, our Middle East uh, market as a source market for tourists. So we're encouraging Elif to fly directly to Nassau. Uh, you can pre-clear if, onward to the U.S. if you, if you wish or onward to a Caribbean destination. So we believe that we can be and that we already have all of the attributes to be the aviation hub for the Caribbean. Well, let's talk about that because for so many years, uh, and you share this with so many other Caribbean destinations, the airlift actually sucked. The airlift wasn't there. There was no real national airline. There was there was Air Jamaica at one point. Uh-huh. You have Bahamas Air, but it's a very small carrier, uh-huh. right? And it was a, one of the Caribbean islands going to get together and figure out open skies and ability to go that way. Because right now, you know, if I want to go from from Nassau, from Miami to Nassau and go somewhere else, in the old days, I had to go back through Miami. Yeah. Right? We still have to do that in many cases. There is much... Uh, ground to cover, work to do in terms of making these linkages. Yes, Bahamas Air has a national carrier, uh, Cayman Airways, there's also Caribbean Airlines, I think now based in Trinidad. And we've started some discussions about uh, collaboration. So Bahamas Air is looking to uh, talk with some of our regional partners, mainly Barbados and Antigua. By the way, you share the same problem in the Caribbean that so many countries share in Africa, mm-hmm. right? The freedom of movement between countries, and expense. Uh-huh. It's it's more expensive to fly from, let's say, Nairobi to Rwanda uh-huh. than it is to go from New York to Rwanda. Uh-huh. It makes no sense. So as the Minister of Tourism, Investments, and Aviation, I have responsibility for ensuring connectivity. We have some experience with this. We have 30 airports in the Bahamas, uh, and therefore we have to uh, mobilize Bahamas there to be able to make this connection. Sometimes Did you just say 30? 30 government-owned airports, and then there are some privately-owned ones. But I focus on the 30. I think that's enough on my plate. So, But your longest runway is Nassau. Yeah, Nassau. There's a very long runway in Grand Bahama, in Nassau and believe it or not, in, in North Cat Island, Arthurstown. We're looking to see what we, what we will do with it. But the bottom line is we have experience in inter-island connectivity. We're now going to take this experience throughout the Caribbean. We're talking with our partners at the Caribbean Tourism Organization to see how we can make this happen, collaborating with other airlines, the Cayman Airways, the Caribbean Airlines, to see how we can ensure that once we get large numbers of tourists into Nassau as the aviation hub, we find a way now to push them through the other so, island destinations. So the, other, the, the idea is to make Nassau the hub for the, for the entire region? That's certainly my plan. I think it's a great plan because of pre-clearance. And of course, the location of the Bahamas is just 30 minutes off the coast of Miami. You know what? Pre-clearance is the answer, I'm telling you. Absolutely. It is. Now, let's talk about cruises, mm-hmm. because most people, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, their first introduction to the Bahamas is the cruise from Miami. We have more cruise visitors than stopovers, and it's very easy to do. 
uh, but we have about 2.5 million stopover visitors and about 5 million in cruise visitors. So they're buying one cocktail, they're buying one straw hat, <laughs> and then they're getting back on the ship. So this is really their appetizer, isn't it? Sometimes, and we hope that that's the teaser, really, to come back as a stopover visitor. I've been telling cruise lines for a long time that they're missing an opportunity, that they should build into their schedule that every ship that goes to a destination, and you could probably require it as a condition for them coming, has to overnight. That way, they're not getting in at 8 in the morning, leaving at 5 in the afternoon, everybody's racing. They can actually immerse themselves, enjoy, see the culture, the history, as opposed to just like hitting the gift shop. We're working with them to, to stop into more than one destination in the Bahamas, to come to Nassau and then go to Grand Bahama, Freeport, uh, or one of their, their other islands. But in are the any Bahamas. of the ships overnighting? Sometimes they overnight. Uh, but that's not a practice. They like to come during the day. Uh, we're creating a lot of new product in, in Freeport to encourage ships to stay overnight. But listen, we want tourists to come back to the Bahamas. We want them to stay in one of our main uh, resorts so they can come for a day as a teaser and then come back. We have great brands like Atlantis and Rosewood and Hyatt and many, many others. They can come and stay the night in the Bahamas. So what's your biggest challenge moving forward? I think we have to chart the way forward in terms of how we uh, manage the sustainability of, of tourism. Our Prime Minister has been working uh, very hard on, on climate mitigation. We live in a hurricane zone. There's nothing we can do about it uh, except that we must continue to send a message to the world uh, to lower carbon emissions and to continue to work through uh, the COP organization uh, to protect small island developing states. But we are going to continue to press forward with our development. Our rebound is outstanding. We have phenomenal growth. We're 16% ahead of 2019, which was a record, wow. record setting year. Uh, so it looks great for travel. It looks looks even better for tourism in the Bahamas, and I'm excited about the future. Going back to Dorian, what lessons did you learn in terms of building codes and rebuilding in a better way? We, we are rebuilding better. Uh, our building codes are, are stronger than, than most of the world. It's, it's based on the Florida uh, building codes, but we, we tend to build with very resilient structure with brick and mortar, etc. Uh, we never anticipated having uh, 20 feet surges, so we're now building higher. Uh, but the bottom line is that we are looking to see how we can really manage the process in advance by helping people to move away from low-lying areas into uh, higher ground, for example. The reality is that we continue to be able to attract significant levels of tourists, notwithstanding that they don't like to come to the Bahamas during the hurricane season. They come during the other seasons and we have a great product for them. My thanks to Minister Cooper. I first traveled to Saudi Arabia back in 1990 when I covered Gulf War I. Back then, getting a visa was next to impossible. All that changed around three years ago when the kingdom opened its doors to the world. And the growth since then has been nothing short of remarkable and exponential. Fahd Hamidadin, the head of the Saudi Tourism Authority, has the enviable and also challenging position of essentially starting with a blank canvas. Fahd Hamidadin, Welcome. I should be welcoming you in Riyadh, and it's always lovely seeing you again here. You know, this particular conference, uh, I've been going to this and a part of this for 25 years. 
It's the largest turnout we've ever seen. More than 52 ministers from 52 separate countries, a number of former and current heads of state, and of course, the royalty and the royal family here in, in Saudi Arabia, all centered around the largest industry in the world, travel and tourism, and the impact on the planet, the impact on society, the impact on economy, the impact on climate. I mean, we, 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 you guys are covering the waterfront here, but I guess the real issue is we've gone from a discussion, let's say three years ago, on crisis to a, rec- to a discussion on recovery, and now a discussion on growth and managing growth and all that entails. From your perspective here in the kingdom, what are your biggest challenges? First, allow me to add to and build on what you said, the importance of the gathering. It's not just in numbers but and uh, quality of speakers, but it's also, I think, the actual fact that both parties are in the room, the public sector and the private sector. I think one of the clearest gaps that the pandemic exposed is the fact that there is no active conversation. And what is particularly important is now that the pandemic has somewhat behind us, we still see them staying together, planning the growth future. And it is our responsibility to answer your question is as we build the future and we build all the GEGA projects, we internally say these are GEGA responsibilities. So our job is to get the thinkers, the scientists, the investors the municipality um, designers and master plan designers all together. you got to get them out of their silos. Exactly. So we take it from just public and private and now look at destination builders and bring them all together. You have the opportunity to do it in a kingdom that was closed for nearly 80 years. Uh, very few countries have that opportunity at this time of the, of the century to essentially start from scratch. Totally, but uh, with that comes great responsibility. And you know, yesterday, the opening panel was talking about the spillover of tourism. We, because we have the, the advantage of coming late in the game and observing others, everybody talks about that pyramid of spillover, how traveler comes and then they feed local communities, SMEs, cities, and all that. I think it's on us now to think of backward pyramid where you start bottom up. So... To me, investors, I as government uh, employee, my job is to ensure that investors that will lead the sector are treated like customers. What do customers want? They want clarity on regulation. They want partnership. They want realistic expectations and incentives that, that a true partner offers. And, and they want consistency. So we're aligning the regulators, the infrastructure builders, the municipality designers, the investment incentives, all of them, work, human capital, workforce uh, funding, to make sure that the investors see a real commitment from all the stakeholders that gives them that convenience and clarity. And of course, there's a, there are a few more things I think you forgot to mention. Comfort, safety, vision, because most of the people listening to this program, and they're going to get angry at me when I tell, it, tell them this, but guys, I've said this before, you're not necessarily geographically evolved. Uh, not you, I'm talking to my listeners. Um, they don't even know where Saudi is. Um, maybe they're afraid of it. Maybe they think it's just oil wells and desert, right? That's been, that was your image for so many years, right? So how do you go about changing that in, a, in an organic way 
and in a realistic way so that people understand that they get a chance to, to go along for the ride now, if you will, as things are changing? Well, I would say to change, step number one is recognize a problem. Recognize that you have to change. In Saudi, we realize that oil and fossil fuel is not the way. We have to diversify the economy. We have another problem, unemployment. And um, there are very few sectors in the world that are still providing new jobs. And tourism sits at the top of them. So that's another problem. For us, diversifying our economy and creating jobs is not luxury. It, this is not a vanity. It's uh, a mandate. Uh, it's a mandate. So you asked me uh, what I forgot. The truth is we cannot solve that without a vision that aligns the arrows. And a vision is a dream with an action plan. If it's just a plan, it's not exciting enough. But our vision is so ambitious that it's so dreamy. I, I like to say a goal is a dream with a deadline. Okay. Oh, well, they both, uh, I'll add that line and I'll quote you, I uh, promise. Okay, you can steal it. It's okay. <laughs> no, but, but seriously, I think the fact that we had this vision that drove hope and then translated into a, an action plan, as I said, bottom-up, aligning all the arrows of government and engaging the private sector, genuine engagement of the private sector for the greater good, and then spreading that vision from infrastructure, as you said, down to the wildlife. You know, people talk about sustainability and and it comes at a cost. And I don't think many businesses are not addressing sustainability for any ill intention. It's just that, that either they don't know how to do it or it's too costly. And there are layers and layers of scope. And so when I ask hospitality hotels, for example, to address sustainability, when, when it comes to energy, that's scope three. If municipalities and energy grids are not um, renewable, how much can a hospitality investor do? So in reality, pointing fingers at each other is not going to work. Let's collaborate and see where everyone's role and con contribution comes. In Saudi, because we're in Greenfield, there is no, there is no, I mean, shame on us if we don't address it from the, right from the get-go. And I'm so glad to see that our vision translated into a plan and, and we're trying to look at the, the, the full spectrum not that we have done it and we, we've, we've achieved quite a bit. I mean, our growth stories surpassing all G20 so far. Our um, attraction of, I mean, just yesterday, Julia Simpson, the CEO and the um, president of the WTTC announced the commitment of $10.5 billion in Saudi. I think this is a testament to something good that we're doing. But the, 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 the greater responsibility is when people start coming to our destination and see us walking the talk. You know, uh, Peter, um, last COP, um, one of the you speakers in, in, Egypt. in Egypt, one of the speakers said Saudi was the only country that I'm aware of that did sustainability baselining, as in really measuring the baseline where they're starting from. And why is this important? We can't manage what we don't measure. While the world sustainability was challenged by transportation in Saudi, waste was even greater um, uh, greenhouse uh, carbon emission uh, source. So what are we doing on that is something that we are now going to be measuring, putting regulations, incentives to partner with our customers, investors first. My thanks to Fahd, to President Munye of Zanzibar, Chester Cooper of the Bahamas, and Marriott CEO Tony Capuano. And my thanks to you, for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, 
as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.